Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Today, my conversation is with Image's new visual arts editor, Aaron Rosen. Aaron is professor of religion and visual culture and director of the Henry Luce III Center for the Arts and Religion at Wesley Theological Seminary. But he also generates and participates in conversations about religion and the arts outside of academia. He's spoken at universities, museums, and religious institutions around the world. He writes books about art for adults and for children. He's contributed to newspapers and magazines and provided commentary for the BBC. He also enjoys working directly with artists and has co-curated exhibitions, including an international traveling Stations of the Cross. Aaron is Jewish, and his wife, Carolyn Rosen, is an Episcopal priest, so he has a special interest in thinking about and practicing interfaith dialogue. He wants to bring an expansive, multi-faith element to Images art coverage while we remain fully engaged in the contemporary art world. He has what he calls an old-fashioned commitment to really good art, because the best art helps us to think better theologically. I talked to Aaron about growing up with a Jewish father and Catholic mother, how religion is, for him, a creative experience, and why we need to have, literally, more faith in art. Okay, so I always start by asking about someone's spiritual background and whether or not you were raised with religion. Uh, my religious background is probably very familiar to people who are the kids of baby boomers, which is my dad was a conservative Jew, which got sort of watered down to reform a little bit, one could say, over time. Then uh, married a Catholic, which was the most, you know, baby boomer Jewish thing that you could do. Um, <laughs> and then uh, when my parents split, um, I just showed an affinity for Judaism. And then later there'd be kind of a way in which uh, Christianity would nose its way back into my life, you know, that I'm married to a priest and uh, and then I am teaching at a seminary. So there's also, and I was trained pretty much as a Christian theologian in many ways at Cambridge, but I've always felt this really deep attachment to Judaism, but in a really slightly heterodox way. So I've always been interested in thinking of Judaism as something that you have to create and and that that's the sort of gift of diaspora as well as of course at times it's been a curse but the gift of diaspora is that Judaism is always having to create and sort of recreate itself and so that was a big part of my life is how do you define as a Jew when there's no other Jews around aside from your dad and I was always pretty much the only Jewish kid in school growing up and then I was largely drawn to very Anglophile environments where, as Philip Ross said, you know, uh, being Jewish is always somewhat impolite in Britain. So, so I was always, so I was always kind of in a minority uh, context and really actually flourished in that, but that actually strengthened my sense that I'm Jewish. And you ask your students in one of your classes to draft an interfaith relations statement. I thought that was really interesting. Tell me about why you think that's a useful exercise for students. Yeah, well, I, in college campuses, you know, oftentimes, you know, it really varies throughout the, uh, the states. And of course, I've also taught in Britain. So there's different places that religion occupies in public life or in the life of a, a college or university community. But I think 
one of the things is I always want to do is get students empowered to feel that they can define what their environment is. So I guess in that way, it kind of relates back to my understanding of religion is being performed anyways, and that optimally, <laughs> there's, there's elements of choice and affinity that go into it. So I want them to think consciously about what kind of environment, what kind of dialogue they want to have. Because I think oftentimes, you know, you're at college for three years in Britain or four years in the States. And you can have these epochal shifts. It's funny that I look back at where I was at, at Bowdoin as an undergrad, and then you go back 10 years later, it's a completely different environment, right? And so colleges both have a sense that they're really calcified and they sell you on a lot of tradition. And yet on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of turnover because their entire population um, is being uh, sort of reconstructed on the fly you know, every year. And so I want them to think that there is an opportunity to think consciously and sort of proactively about what they want dialogue to look like on their campus. And especially now, because it's so fraught, um, both from the far right, especially, but occasionally also from the far left. But I like this idea of religion as creation as an artist. Mm -hmm. Something really appealing about that, of stepping away from like the institutional boundary and really treating it like the creative process that it is. Yeah, and I think it um, it works best when there's a sense of the depth of tradition, right? And that's the the problem that Reform Judaism always dealt with, which is that I and and something that I find myself um, grappling with, which is that you want oftentimes you want to maintain a sense of autonomy, and yet you also want so you want to be able to pick and choose from traditions and decide what you have an affinity for and what you want to sort of agglomerate together to, as you form your own religious identity. And yet these are systems which in terms of Judaism or Catholicism that have lasted millennia and have evolved in different ways, but they've always, as they've evolved, they've also also told you that they're not evolving. So there's something that that is at least the, the sort of um, the effective presence of stasis there. So as you're picking and choosing, you know, how does that work? And eventually if you've chosen certain things, then what do the future generations look like if there is not that depth of connection to tradition? So I've always felt like, you know, a strong attachment to early 20th century Jewish writers and, you know, people like Kafka writing about how it is that, um, as Judaism was being passed on to him um, by his father, parts of it were sort of dribbling away or that, you know, a story that, you know, uh, Jews of that generation in Bohemia were like um, horses, you know, with their um, back hooves on the ground and the in the front sort of um, pawing into the air. But there's an authenticity to that struggle. So what happens when all you can do is remember the struggle of people who were <laughs> um, feeling that separation? What does that look like three, four, or five generations later? So reform is the answer to that by coming back to a lot of traditions, but still trying to emphasize that people get to make authentic personal choices about their faith. So, you know, I think that's, um, I think there's always that tension of, of how to maintain knowledge, but also maintain choice. And so as a scholar of religion, it's in some ways it's easier, right? Because, or with the depth of your knowledge of religious tradition, because you can keep coming back or, or you know, find back doors into the tradition, or you can find eccentric ways of re-inhabiting certain aspects. And you can kind of love Catholicism sometimes more than it's loved itself. <laughs> you can love it against itself, or for you know or in spite of itself you, in the interview you did with Anne McCoy who is an artist who is heavily invested in mysticism she practices alchemy she also practices a surprisingly traditional kind of Catholicism she talks about praying the rosary at night to get to sleep for example 
In that interview, you talked a little bit about this, about the interplay of tradition and mystery. I want to remind you of a quote from that interview, something you said. You said, a lot of the mystery of the tradition has been depleted or lost to many Jews. In the great modernizing movements in the late 19th century, there was this really powerful vision for the future and a sense that some things needed to be left behind to embrace the present. For those generations, that was emancipating. But what do you do three, four, five generations later when people don't have the same knowledge base, the same traditions, which they can choose to accept or reject? And that goes along with what we were just talking about, this idea that when you become too divorced from tradition, you know, this idea that you lose what you were wrestling with all along, mm -hmm. you're having this disembodied battle with what? Um, how do you see that impacting, you know, our artists, our contemporary artists, or our under, even our understanding or appreciation of art? I think Anne's a really interesting figure because she was doing something that was unpopular in different decades, which is maintaining that, um, that sense of that tradition. And also, you know, in a very complicated way. So at times, you know, angrily, but, but again, keeping it, some of these traditions uh, sort of inflamed and, um, and active within uh, her creative life. I mean, I think that uh, what we're seeing for a lot of younger artists now is that there's a little more freedom to come back to religious questions and religious practices. I think partly because there is an exhaustion with what's seen as quite vapid in a lot of the contemporary art world. Um, and, and even things that um, were really exciting when people are, you know, co-opting in the 1990s, early 2000s, French thinking from the 60s and 70s, um, that was seen as pretty, uh, pretty avant-garde. You know, art schools, I think, were kind of grooving them into um, a particular way of telling their narrative and their story for other ways that they can, other, you know, cultural touchstones to, to draw from. And I think religion has been that kind of untapped source for a lot of people. People were encouraged for a long time to talk about their sexual identity or their, their sense of ethnic identity, cultural affiliations, all sorts of different things. But religion was that thing that was seen as, you know, perhaps somewhat verboten. Do you think there's something shifting also, you're talking about the artists, the creators, but in terms of museums and galleries, is that shifting? Is that perception shifting and in academic arts programs? Or are people tired of sensationalism or the stance of rejection or rebellion against tradition or religious faith? Yeah, and I think the best of that kind of stuff is, is already done. Frankly, people were in the 1990s with shows like Sensation thinking that this was new, but the great works of blasphemy and heterodoxy or iconoclasm were all already done largely by the 1920s. I mean, so, so it's real. So I, I, so actually there was something hugely derivative of that. And that's why some of that art um, has less staying power. You know, I think a lot of the things that um, Damien Hurst produces some really intriguing work, you know, so I think his pharmacy work has more to say about religion than his works, which are more explicitly religious in their conception. But I think people are, um, yeah, people are sort of uh, tired of, of taking that, um, that approach. I think there's always been that feeling that you could use religion in your work as long as it was a sort of exoticism, you know, right. Sort of, even as a writer too, if you include yeah. your religion as a sexy additional detail that might be mysterious or intriguing to the non-religious person or the formerly religious person, but if you're seriously engaging with your faith, that was much more frightening <laughs> for a secular yeah. audience or reader. You're pointing out about Orientalism and why we were more open to art from Buddhist and Hindu artists, art that we couldn't understand from our personal framework. And somehow, this, okay. 
Yeah, the 50s to the 70s was just utterly infused with uh, approaches to Zen, which some would now label appropriationist. You know, and sometimes there was a real authenticity to the uh, concerns that were there. Very few people were looking for analogies in um, Western traditions, you know, and someone like Ad Reinhardt was pretty unique in the sense that he was really au fait with that language from um, from Zen. He had att he'd attended um, D.T. Suzuki's lectures in Columbia, but at the same time, he was reading the um, negative theologians uh, in the Christian traditions. So he was reading people like Meister Eckhart. So, um, so you do have these kind of exemplars, but even he knew you could only use a certain amount of that diction in public without it kind of infecting your reputation. I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about Damien Hirst and how you think his art that is not explicitly religious is more interesting to you in terms of religion. And there's another quote I wrote down from you. You said, when you enter the world of art, you are like it or not entering the realm of religion. Those seem related to me. Talk to me a little bit about how you came to focus on that intersection of art and religion as an, you know, an academic specialty in your career? Well, I think um, the first topic I was really interested in was religion. And I had a great professor, Nicola Denzi, who taught me Christian heresy, as was my first class in religion, um, which is actually ends up being pretty typical of me, that I was interested in the heresies before the orthodoxies always. I then became very interested in things that people hold to have ultimate value to them and, uh, and the hermeneutic pressures that that then exerts. And so I was very interested in, uh, in how it is that one could read scripture very, very closely, but, um, but derive very different opinions from it than what I feel like was, you know, circulated in the 90s cultures, wars, and, and, and things of that nature. So I was really interested in that point of kind of like almost defiantly telling people they were wrong about their literalism. And that began to change over time. <laughs> but, you know, it's very, you know, late teens, early 20s kind of, I, I think, approach. So I got interested um, it, with the classes I took with Eamon Duffy and with Graham Howes to think about how it is I could take that kind of scrupulosity of, of the hermeneutic approach I was in interested into scripture, and I could apply that to art, and I could find ways to tell very cohesive, coherent stories about a work of art theologically. So I was not so much interested always in establishing the art historical narrative sort of biographically. I always felt like that's an important part, and I don't dismiss that, uh, but I was always very interested in how you can tell stories with and about art that really impact one's identity or help you frame major existential issues. I, and I have a, a tremendous respect and admiration for the, the poetry of religious language and the wisdom that's contained in it in so many of my favorite books and not just books of scripture, but so many of my favorite books are ones that evoke strong, powerful religious language. And being Jewish, that's not, that's not always the operative question. It's what you do as much as what you quote unquote believe or where that intentionality or passion resides. So I think I don't, I always try to guard against super imposing a kind of American Protestantism on Jewish culture. That's so interesting. Yeah, this idea that it's really freeing in a way, that it doesn't really depend on our faith. <laughs> it right. depends on actions and intentionality. More. And actions can create actions can create faith. And as a lot of Jewish theologians um, over time, they might not have themselves as theologians per se, but recognized was that, uh, yeah, it was precisely that it was challenging to assay what uh, what was going on in other people's heads that you couldn't mandate these things you couldn't say what's well, all about how much you believe what what you can control is is do people behave in a certain way and that's that's what matters. 
So that softening of atheism, do you think that comes as a result of the experience of art? What, what kind of role has art played in that, if any? Well, it's again that sort of tension of art and life, right? I mean, I think part of that is art, and uh, and there's a, uh, some really great books, of course, on this topic. And I think of my friend Philip Francis's work about art disrupting religion and, and different things. But uh, for me, I guess as much as I've had very powerful experiences in front of and in interacting with art, and especially when being involved with artists, I have felt the things that have catalyzed larger changes in my approach to religion are personal. So it's that. For me, the tragedy of losing my sister made me understand uh, Whitney at, when she was 22 and in my late 20s was that I felt that I implicitly, I understood then that I had implicitly held quasi-theological perceptions. And so you realize when you have tragedy that you've always believed you exist in this kind of penumbra where certain things could not reach the people that you love. And when you realize that that's punctured, paradoxically, you realize that you had that, you know, so it's only when it's pierced that you realize that you, that you had that sort of conviction. But then you also realize that you need some of that conviction to continue. And so I, I remember reading, you know, in the, in the ensuing years, reading Graham Greene and, you know, that sense of where one of the characters writes, you know, I hate to God, you know, I, I hate you as if you existed, you know, that you kind of hate God into existence or you struggle with God into existence. That's was that time when I realized, okay, I do have certain religious convictions in a way. Um, and it's and it's probably never going to resolve itself into something that would more comfortably resemble faith for a lot of people. But um, but there are these religious trajectories that I have and I want to take those seriously. And then and certainly working a lot with artists, I found that I became I was very interested in you know deeper states of things and that um, artists and priests are, tend to be my life these days. And so, um, and so I see them as seekers of very similar things at their, at their best. And it's just that one has to oftentimes try to communicate more stability and meaning and one is sometimes more um, comfortable in the obverse of that in, in terms of uh, the splintering of meaning. But both of them are, are aiming towards territory that's very similar to me. really interesting the artist and the priest as parallels one disrupting one working towards some kind of cohesion i was going to ask you how that works out in your marriage but that's a beautiful answer there yeah and i feel strengthened by um carolyn's faith because it provides me something to as a as a counterpoint maybe we should draw out that distinction between the academic study of religion and religious studies versus being a theologian. So you do consider yourself a theologian. I do, unless I need to hide from other theologians and then I say I'm an art historian. <laughs> so if I say something that's, you know, theologically a bit permeable. But yeah, I do, I do definitely within the genre of religious studies and theology, I've often felt like divinity schools, seminaries, these are the places that I'm more truly at home because I want to talk with people about things that are meaningful and have a particular personal import to them. And I want to talk constructively. I always want to, you know, when I look at a work of art, well, how does this shape your life? You know, the question from Rilke, you know, it's really, how does this ask you to change your life? How is this impactful? 
I want to talk to you about one of the most popular subjects for essays that I receive in submissions for the section of image that I edit, which is the online portion called Good Letters. And people always want to write about Chagall's white crucifixion, but they almost always want to write about white crucifixion from a Christian perspective. And Chagall was Jewish. And obviously his Jewish faith was informing his obsession with the crucifixion. And you have written about this. So I wanted to talk to you about white crucifixion and why it's so important to consider to know Chagall's faith when we look at that painting. Mm, Yeah. And I've oftentimes felt how problematic this is, right? And I, I, I did write in my first book, I have a chapter about uh, Chagall and why he's so interested in crucifixion. So for me, I mean, it, I, I took a different tack than a lot of the people who'd written about that before. And, and there are endless people who've written about mm-hmm. Chagall's white crucifixion. And I saw to sort of see that within a shift that certainly at that time, he was using it to find an effective language to talk back to a largely Christian world, as he saw it in Europe, that was standing by as Jews were being murdered, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so this is, of course, in 1938, and so on the cusp of things and certain knowledge is beginning to trickle out. But many people can begin to sort of see the writing on the wall in a lot of ways. And so it's this urgent call for action. And there's no one that he feels that Christians will listen to more than Jesus Christ. So he's, he's trying to adopt that language. But there's a fascination with Jesus that predates that, you know, he has a deposition. He has different images, you know, dating as far back to, you know, like around 1912. So he has a, a deep interest in Christian iconography. And then that also continues after the Second World War, and it goes in different ways. And sometimes there are images which seem utterly celebratory. So you have, you know, you can have um, roosters and cows and goats flying in the air, and then you have Jesus, you know, etched in a little crucifixion floating around in this amalgamation, right? And so what is it doing? So the the crucifixion almost becomes like a signature for him. And the thing that I always come back to for that is Asher Lev um, by Chaim Potok, and the way Asher Lev sort of learns is this young Jewish boy from his mentor, um, Jacob Kahn, the character in the in the book, that that if you're going to become a painter, if you're going to become a great artist, you have to do nudes and you have to do crucifixions. That's what art is. That's the Christian tradition that you're coming into. And that's, as he says, if you want to save the world, that's the world you're saving, you know, that's full of this, this symbolism. So I think for Chagall, what he wanted to do was he wanted to find his relationship with that art historical past with that canon so my chapter is i think called something if i recall something like you know fostering a family of images so the crucifixion becomes a way to relate to grunewald um it becomes a way to relate to all the great christian artists of the past so it's about putting himself in this continue this sense of a continuous evolving artistic tradition, but coming from the outside as a Jew and having to kind of graft himself into that artistic lineage. And so that's why the crucifixion becomes important. It's kind of a badge of his um, belonging to, to Western art and his willingness to speak in that language, but never redemptively. And so that's why you see Christ in every permutation, but you don't see so much a risen Christ. And in fact, I point out in one of his great paintings that you see a fiddler rising after you see all the crucified Christ. So it's really about a Jewish rebirth. So you've also co-curated an exhibition of Stations of the Cross. The project takes inspiration from the tradition, the Catholic tradition of praying the stations, I'm assuming, which represent 14 events along Jesus' final journey through Jerusalem from his condemnation to crucifixion and burial. 
Can you describe for me just one of the stations? Sure, I mean, so every year uh, there's 14 locations in a different host city and that'll rotate. You know, there was moments when we have also art and we've thought about it, there's a couple signal pieces that we've used in different exhibitions um, and sometimes they've occupied different stations. Um, But one of the ones that um, uh, has been shown a couple times is Michael Takeo Magruder's uh, work, Lamentation for the Forsaken. And that is something that is uh, originally based on us thinking about what would be a good entombment image. Uh, and that's one of the great things about the stations across to my mind is that it ends with uh, entombment as opposed to having to uh, end with resurrection. It's another thing that makes it very, very accessible to people of different religious backgrounds. And so Michael created this modular structure a little bit like a Donald Judd that it's a modular structure of um, several different boxes but at the top is digital screens from each of these boxes um, together form a shroud of Turin in its x-rayed image but images of Syrian refugees kind of float to the surface and occupy different places within this body so it's a different way of thinking of the corporate sort of body of Christ I suppose but it's really emphasizing what is quite questions about what is it that we mourn, how do we publicly mourn things, and also playing with the tradition of the Shroud of Turin as a, as a work of art and something that's kind of mysterious or photographic, just like the idea of the Veronica's Sudarium, that she's the Vera icon, the patron saint of photographers. So it's really something that, that it, it's a tr- this tradition of these images that are not made by hands, uh, the Cairo Poeta, is something that is really so ripe for artistic reflection. So it's really coming back to that tradition, but at the same time dealing with these really urgent social issues and, and trying to do so in a way that's not sort of appropriating other people's pain for Christian benefit, right? Because that's always the anxiety there is what kind of rights or responsibilities do we have when dealing with other people's painful experiences. I wanna go back to what you were saying earlier when you were describing the Station of the Cross, you talked about Veronica this myth or story or legend of Veronica, it's not in the Bible. And I thought it was really interesting, this idea that she's kind of like a patroness of photography. Veronica is this kind of neologism. So so Veronica in the Stations of the Cross legend, and we have to remember that that legend of the Stations of the Cross, and then the actual practice of praying the Stations of the Cross evolves over a long historical mm-hmm. period. But Veronica becomes this key figure w- where she holds up to Christ what in Yiddish we call a shmata, but a, <laughs> a rag, and Christ uses it to wipe the sweat of his brow, but it imprints his face in this quasi-magical way, or in a way that, that feels very much like producing a photographic negative right and yeah. um, so it's it becomes something which gives the imprimatur for people who want to think of the the image not made by hands the miraculous image so so many of us will only ever experience those these pieces of art as you know in a book or on the web and there this exhibit does have a web component correct we can go to a website that's right. Um, www.artstations.org. Yep. And these, so talk to me about those kinds of secondary experiences. You're now the visual arts editor for Image, so you're also helping us to put together a print journal where people can experience fine art, visual arts. So what does the secondhand experience of art offer? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, I mean, it's really, really challenging, especially with certain digital immersive works. The kind of things that Michael makes are just absolutely breathtaking in person. But then um, one of the things that he will do is sometimes we have a print on our wall. They did a 
a limited edition print inspired by that work and try to, so sometimes what I'll do is try to make work that's authentically its own work of art that's related to, as it were, the kind of the mothership. So that's one way to do things is to offer people a point of entry there. Another is to rely on description is one of the things that image does very well is, you know, great writing that evokes art because some of the things that you need to do to think about, you know, works like Michael's, you know, I don't actually think that the videos of some of these things can do full justice to them. So it's really about the testimony that people offer to seeing this and having a really rich phenomenologically engaged response to that so so one of the things is that I think people sometimes get trapped into thinking that in order to make certain types of art engaging in reproduction you have to have the best reproduction available no actually sometimes the most uh, going back to the more primitive skill of good writing um, is actually more important than trying to capture things and some of the best art has been made to be evasive of reproduction itself so I think about Ad Reinhardt again, and he wanted to, as he said, to create unreproducible work. So it's done in um, such finely tuned different shades of black that you can really only appreciate it, not even when you just see it in person, but when you spend 10, 20, 30 minutes in front of it, that it changes over time. What is your hope for image in your new role as visual arts editor? I think there's just a lot of room to get a little bit more innovative and I want to bring in a more diverse platform for artists. So I, first of all, I want to bring in a lot more younger talent um, in terms of the artists that we talk about. And I want it to be uh, there more multi-faith elements. And again, a lot very relevant to what we talked about with Chagall, which is that I'm interested how contemporary artists of different traditions are engaging oftentimes with questions that either have a Christian relevance or have Christian symbolism about it. So I want to think very expansively about what might be count as religious art. And I want to push us to have, as I always say, sort of more faith in art. So I think we have this reflexive desire sometimes to look for controversy and to say, oh, this person's being iconoclastic or they're doing this and, and really frame things for people and say, well, Yes, but possibly. But what if you start from the premise that this person has something interesting to say about Christianity? What does, where does that get us? And I think it gets us to better, more interesting places than a reflexive desire just to, you know, cancel things out and say that they're, they're, you know, unchristian, you know, atheistic or, or, or what have you. So I want to push really fresh art that's really engaged with the contemporary art world, because I really do believe something that Father, um, Marie Allen uh, Couturier said in the 1940s that, you know, the best art produces the best religion. I really am, have this very old-fashioned commitment to really good art. And it can be good art that's digital, it can be good art that's controversial, but the really best art helps us think better theologically. And so that's always my goal, is to try to find the best language. You've been listening to The Image Podcast, produced by Roy Salmon and Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. For more information and to subscribe to the print journal, please visit The Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can also learn more about each episode of this podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the print journal through The Image Archive. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash image podcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content, and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, 
and mysteries.